18. So if you have a Bible, open it up and uh, we'll read uh, this passage. James chapter 1, verses 12 to 18. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. Amen. This is the word of God. Well, last week we talked about how all of us face all kinds of trials in life. But as we saw, these trials are not random, out-of-control events uh, that we hope to just scrape through. No, no, these, we know that these trials are under the direction of our loving Heavenly Father who puts us through them for a purpose and a goal. The purpose is to test and strengthen our faith, and the goal is that then we would be more like Jesus. And so we can rejoice in that. We can rejoice in this purpose and goal in our trials, even as we face the pain of them. So that was last week. Uh, well, today we're still talking about enduring trials, uh, but this time we're going to see how the, the same trials, which are opportunities for spiritual growth, can also become occasions for falling into temptation and getting entangled into sin. And so part of remaining faithful under pressure is to think carefully about the temptations that we face and handling them in the right way. And that's what this passage in James chapter 1, verse 12 to 18 is all about. It sets out for us uh, four things that we'll consider. It shows us the occasion for temptation in verses 12 to 13. It shows us the origin of temptation in verses 13 and 14. It shows us the order of temptation in verses 14 to 16, and then finally, the overcoming of temptation in verses 17 to 18. So the occasion, the origin, the order, and the overcoming of temptation. Let's look at that. So first, the occasion for temptation, that's in verses 12 to 13. And you'll notice in these two verses that there's a transition from James talking about trials in general to now talking about temptation. And it's important to see how closely these two are related. Uh, the actual Greek word that's translated temptation in verse 13, it's the very same Greek word that's translated trial uh, back in verse 12. And so it's the same Greek word. It's the context which indicates how it should be translated. But what this shows us is that trials and temptations are very closely related. Uh, in fact, it shows us that trials are also the occasion for temptation that every trial we face always brings with it temptations. And so to use an example, this pandemic that we have to endure, it's a trial, as we've been saying. Uh, but this trial, it prompts all kinds of temptations within us. 
And so that could be the temptation to uh, grumble and complain. It could be the temptation to uh, break the laws that the government has imposed uh, during lockdowns. It could be the temptation to doubt God's goodness in your life or to question his sovereignty. It could be the temptation to despair or become cynical. I know that every time when I read the news about COVID, that's the temptation I face, the temptation to despair, thinking it seems like it's never going to end. And on top of that, these times of lockdown in the pandemic can actually be occasions for becoming entangled in all kinds of habits that can bring a lot of grief to your life. Uh, you see, this pandemic, it gives that sense of hopelessness and, and uncertainty about the future. You know, what will COVID normal be? There's that sense of, there's a hopelessness about it. And as a result, it can be very tempting to look for comfort in escapism at this time. And so that can take on all kinds of forms, anything from uh, unwise uh, spending online to overeating to excessive TV, all the way to things like gambling, pornography, uh, substance abuse, alcoholism. Now, obviously all of these things existed before the pandemic, uh, but the stress of the lockdowns has seen an increase of all of these things. And along with other things like domestic violence and self-harm, eating disorders, and so the trial of the pandemic, it's also an occasion for temptations. All trials are also occasions for temptation. And everyone faces temptation. Everyone. Christians are not immune from temptation. So the issue is not whether or not we will face them. The issue is, are you resisting temptation? And I'm particularly concerned for us at this time because one of the things the lockdown has taken from us is the ability to regularly gather together in person for corporate worship which is so important to our spiritual health and thankfully we have substitutes like um, prayer meeting on zoom and study groups on zoom and uh, the you know the youtube service that you're watching right now um, but i am concerned that without this regular gathering together and worshiping together singing which is so important uh, as part of growing in Christ, it could be that some of you at this time are more susceptible to losing your way, to becoming entangled in things uh, in, under the pressure of temptation. And perhaps some of you aren't doing so well at the moment. But do you see, it's, it's a trial, but in the trial, there are also the occasion for temptation. That's what verses 12 to 13 show us. And that means that right now, you're either going forward into maturity or you're going backwards into temptation and sin. See, how you handle this trial and the temptations that you face in it will either make you a much better person or a much worse person depending on how you respond. Uh, but you won't remain the same. See, that's the occasion for temptation. The next thing we see in this passage, though, is that it's extremely important for us to think about the origin of temptation. See, where does it come from? Where do temptations come from? And it's important for us to be very clear on this because of how easy it is to deceive ourselves in this area. And you'll notice the point of verse 13 is actually to correct some wrong thinking about how God is involved in, our, uh, in all of this. See, verse 13, let no one say when he is tempted, 
I am being tempted by God. And we've probably all done this at some point uh, in our lives where we've been in some situation and thought and, and handled it really poorly and secretly thought to ourselves, you know, if God didn't put me in this mess, I wouldn't have done what I did. Now, look, anyone familiar with the Bible will know that uh, every trial we face is ultimately, uh, it ultimately comes from God. I mean, if we take God's sovereignty seriously, we, we have to see that behind every trial, every external difficulty is a loving father who, who accomplishes his good purpose in our lives through suffering. That's a huge theme in the Bible. You see that right through, uh, you know, the life of Joseph is a perfect example of that. Look at the man Joseph became as God put him through all of those trials. Or consider Job, uh, a man developed by suffering. Uh, think of even Jonah. I mean, Jonah, God used suffering to change Jonah. See, God developed them all through suffering. And in this way, they all point to Jesus himself, who Hebrews says, learned obedience through what he suffered. And along with this, there are numerous passages in the Bible that talk about God using a trial to test his people. So think of Abraham in Genesis 22 verse 1. I tested Abraham. Uh, think of the Israelites in the wilderness. Uh, Exodus 16.4 says that God tested them with manna. So, so we can see God uses trials <clears throat> to test us, to, to test our faith, to refine our faith, uh, to make us more like Jesus. We looked at that last week. But what James is saying here in verse 13 is that although God arranges the trials in our lives for these good purposes, uh, God never does that to entice us to sin. He never does that because he wants to see you fall or to see your faith destroyed. His tests are never the cause of temptation. That's so important to think through. And look at the reason why that James gives in verse 13. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. See, that's saying that there's nothing about sin that's attractive to God. God is pure in every way. There is no evil in him. And that means that there can be no ulterior motive in the trials God sends. If God puts his own people through a trial, there can be no ulterior motive. It must be motivated by love, by seeking the good of his people. You know, like Romans 8.28, in all things, we know God works for the good of those who love him. And then it goes on to say, in order that we would be conformed to Christ. So God always has a good purpose in the trials he sends. Yes, he tests us with them, but he never tempts us. You know, in the first point, we saw that every trial is also an occasion for temptation. But we must not wrongly conclude from that, that therefore God is the one who is tempting us or who is trying to make us slip up. Well, where does temptation come from then? Well, James tells us in verse 14, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Our own desires are the cause of temptation. See, as human beings, we are desire driven. Everything we do is acting out our desires, the desires that we have in the very core of our being, in our hearts. 
And because we are sinful, some of those desires or many of those desires are for things that go against God's law. And so we see in verse 14 here that it's our desires that are actually the cause of temptation. That's why we get tempted, because we have desires uh, that are sinful. And that means that whenever you give in to temptation, whenever, it's, it's actually always your own doing. Uh, it's, it's always something that originates not outside of you, but from within you. Uh, James is saying that the only reason you sin is because you want to sin. You desire it. Uh, no one forces you. Circumstances don't force you. You can't blame the trial and you can't blame God. The only reason we are tempted is because we have a desire for sin. That's what verse 14 says. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And this is, it's really radical stuff. I mean, this is the very opposite of what we so often tell ourselves. You know, there's such a deep tendency in all of us to try to find excuses for our sin, uh, to lay the blame elsewhere. And so we will blame other people. You know, we'll say things like, that person makes me so angry. Really? Uh, we will say things like, uh, that event I went to, that turned me into this kind of person. Did it? Or did your response to it turn you into that kind of person? We blame our upbringing. We blame the government. Uh, we blame anything. But the main thing we want to blame for our problems is our circumstances. And I catch myself doing this uh, often. You know, for example, if I have a series of nights where I have really bad sleeps, uh, then in that trial, I'm very prone to the temptation to be irritable, to be impatient. And when I sin in those ways, I find myself trying to justify it, saying, well, it's not my fault I'm so angry today or so irritable today because I haven't had much sleep. But you see, that's confusing the circumstance of sin with the cause of sin. The, the cause of sin isn't, not, isn't lack of sleep. The cause of sin is actually in my own heart, my desires. And we do that all the time when it comes to our behavior. We, we look for a reason to justify it, to lay the blame elsewhere. And that just proves that we're a chip off the old block, that we are children of our first parents, Adam and Eve, because that's exactly what they did with the very first sin in the world. They laid the blame elsewhere. Do you know there's something that's quite surprising about this passage is that there's actually no mention of Satan. Now, this is one of the main passages in the Bible about temptation, and there's no mention of the tempter. I mean, that's not because James was unaware of Satan. He's certainly aware of him. He says later on in the book, in chapter 4, verse 7, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Now, James doesn't mention Satan here because he doesn't need to. Uh, his point is that every single sin that we ever commit, it comes from within us. Uh, if you trace the origins of it, you will find that it always comes from within, not from outside. And see, Satan does come at us and tempt us and he, he seeks our downfall. But you don't have to give in to him. You can resist him, like James says. Uh, you only give in to him if you desire what he's offering. But in the end, the blame falls on us, on our desires. And so do you see what James is doing? 
Uh, he is taking away every excuse we could ever possibly come up with to avoid responsibility for our actions. See, you can't blame your situation, you can't blame Satan, you can't blame other people, and you certainly can't blame God, because the only reason we give in to temptation is because we choose to, we desire it. And that is very confronting, I know. But you have to realize that believing this and accepting this is actually vital in order to overcome temptation. Because if you honestly believe that you can't help giving in, that when temptation comes, that you have no choice but to give in, if you believe that, if you believe that your circumstances or other people make it impossible for you not to give in, if that's how you think, then there's really no hope for you. You have no hope but just to end up sinning. But see, if it's something that you are responsible for, something that arises out of your own desires, then there actually is possibility of change. But before we talk about that change, we need to think more deeply about the order, our third point, the order of temptation. That is, how, how does temptation work? Because if we know how temptation works, then we'll be better equipped um, to fight it. Now, notice the order that James describes in verses 14 to 15. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Now, by my account, there are four stages of temptation in these verses. Uh, the first stage begins with being lured and enticed. And if we were to break down that a little, a little bit, uh, it's talking about our mind being lured to consider something. So some, some thought. And that entices your affections. Okay? You look at that thing and it becomes desirable to you. Uh, so think about Eve as she looked at that fruit on the forbidden tree. Or David as he, as he stood on that balcony and looked down and saw Bathsheba. See, his mind thought of something and then he was enticed. Uh, and as we just saw in the last point, that actually comes from within us, our own desires. And so we could actually say that we entice ourselves. We're our own worst enemy. We entice ourselves. But once that desire takes a hold or has been conceived, as James puts it, then the next stage happens. Step two, it gives birth to sin. Now, this is the point at which sin happens. Uh, sin happens when you choose to act on a desire. Uh, this, and so the sin comes out. It comes out as either thoughts or words or deeds. Uh, so the plucking of the fruit for Eve, the, the sending of the messenger for David, the click of a button, uh, the sharing of gossip. See, acting on the desire. That's, that's the second stage. That's when sin comes about. But that's not the end of sin. There's a third stage to this because once sin is born, it goes on growing. See, sometimes we like to think that giving into sin is a way of getting it out of our system. Uh, you see that a lot with anger. You know, if I just have a quick fit of rage, get it out of the system, I'm done with it. That doesn't get it out at all. That actually gives sin a place to live in your life. If you do that, it becomes indwelling. You've probably heard that word before, indwelling sin. That's sin that's stuck. 
uh, that you keep giving into. And unless there is repentance, that sin will keep growing and it will take over and gain control of your life and then become ruling. It'll rule your life. And then that leads to the final stage. Sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. And so notice how James uses these images of birth, conception, growth and death uh, to illustrate the workings of sin. It's like sin has a life of its own. See, sin starts out as a desire, very small. At, the, at stage one, it, it seems so little, so seemingly innocent. But if you keep feeding it, it grows and it becomes something extremely ugly and powerful and will kill you. Now, you occasionally hear about people, usually in the US, who attempt to make a pet out of something like a grizzly bear or a chimpanzee or a tiger. And, you know, when those animals are um, little, when they're, you know, babies, they are, they are absolutely adorable. You know, they are so cute, so playful, so seemingly innocent. You just want to pet them and feed them and look after them. But see, if you keep feeding them, eventually they grow stronger than you. And then they can overpower you. And it turns out that some people have fed and cared for the very thing that would eventually grow up and kill them. And that's exactly what sin does in our lives if we feed and care for it. See, verse 15 says, plainly says, sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. And so we need to wake up. It's, it's easy to believe that dabbling in sin is harmless, but there's a lot more at stake behind every temptation that we face. Every temptation, it's like a door opening up a path. And at the end of that path is death. And so every temptation is actually aimed at your death. Every one. See, once there's conception, there's birth, then there's maturity and finally death. It's, it's like it's an inevitable cycle. And so, for example, uh, let's just think about this a bit. So bitterness might seem like a fairly legitimate response to being hurt by someone. But if you keep feeding that, if you keep giving into that temptation, uh, that will grow into something extremely ugly in your life and will take over. It will, it will destroy your life. Uh, pornography might seem like a fairly innocent thing. Uh, you might tell yourself it's not hurting anyone, which is clearly wrong. I mean, the whole industry is built on abuse. Um, but if you keep feeding that, that will grow in your life and that will completely unravel you. It will destroy your life. Uh, here's another one, grumbling. Grumbling might seem like a fairly tame sort of sin uh, at the start, but what did it do to the Israelites of that wilderness generation? Grumbling. See, every temptation, it has the potential to turn into something that will take over your life and destroy you. Uh, you know, John Owen, a Puritan writer, he, he, one of the best writers on this whole subject, and he put it perfectly. He wrote, be killing sin or it will kill you. Be killing sin or it will kill you. Sin will drag you all the way to hell. And so we need to wake up to the seriousness of this. There's a lot more going on behind every temptation. You know, it's, it's like if you open that door and go through, you might not get back out. You might be locked in there. 
That's why James adds in verse 16, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers and sisters. So this is serious stuff. In fact, this is damning stuff. This is damning because we've all given into temptation. We've all opened that door and gone through down the path. We've all opened the Pandora's box of sin and we can't get the lid back on. So what hope is there for us? Well, James tells us there is hope. And he lays it out in verses 17 to 18. Here we see the overcoming of temptation. So look at these two verses, verse 17 and 18. Every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. See, these verses are saying that God, in his goodness, has done something to break the cycle of temptation, sin and death in your life. See, we are all on the path to eternal death, every single one of us. But these two verses are saying that God in his goodness and of his own will chose to intervene into our lives and deliver us from certain destruction. So what exactly did he do? We'll have a look at verse 18 again. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. So that's talking about the new birth that happens through the word of truth. That is through the good news of Jesus. The new birth, it's not something we produce. It's something God does in us by his own power, of his own will. And he does it because of everything that Jesus has already completed in his death and resurrection. So you think about it. Jesus died on the cross to pay for our sin. He rose again as the beginning of God's new creation. And he did that 2,000 years ago. So how does that impact you today? Well, that's what verse 18 is saying. It's saying that in time, God, of his own will, he brings what Jesus did to life in you by making you born again. And look at what that does for us at the end of verse 18, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So first fruits, it's a very important word in the Bible. It's used in the Old Testament and the New. And what it is, it's the first part of a crop to ripen. And so when you get the first fruits, you now know what the full harvest will look like. And so this verse is saying that God is recreating the world, a world where sin and death will be gone forever. And Jesus, risen from the dead, he is the first fruits. That's what 1 Corinthians 15 tells us in verses 20 to 22. Jesus is the first fruits, him risen from the dead. He is the beginning of God's new creation. But here we see that the moment uh, that you are born again, that you too are a kind of first fruits. Notice that, a kind of first fruits. <clears throat> and that means that you too, in a partial way, are with Jesus the beginning of the new creation. You're a new creation in Christ. <clears throat> now, what does all of this have to do with overcoming temptation? Well, it means that you've already got a taste of that future victory over sin and death. In the new birth, you have a new heart, which means you have new desires uh, in your heart where the desire for sin once ruled. Now you have new desires 
the desire for God, the desire for his law, the desire for his holiness. And that means that the new creation has begun in you. The new creation, the place where holiness reigns, that has begun in you. But it's not complete yet. You're a kind of first fruits. And so that means that if you are born again, what will that be like in experience? It will mean you have competing desires. Uh, temptation will still arise in your heart. But see, something has happened where once you would have gladly surrendered to that temptation, now there's a struggle. Now there's a fight. Now you put up resistance. And now you, you, you feel yourselves being pulled in two directions. And now you absolutely hate it when you give in to temptation. You absolutely hate it. Not just because you've let yourself down, and not only because you've let God down, the reason you hate giving into temptation now is because you know what that sin did to Jesus on the cross. And you absolutely hate your sin now. But even though you hate sin, and you hate it when you do sin, you don't despair. Instead, you confess your sin to God and you trust that Christ's blood shed for you is your forgiveness. And now having confessed your sin, uh, you go forward with that renewed, uh, renewed resolve to live a godly life. See, being born, born again, it doesn't mean that the, the fight against temptation is now over. Being born again means the fight against temptation has begun. And it's not an easy fight. Uh, daily victories are certainly not automatic. But by God's grace, they are now possible. They are now real. They can be experienced. They're, they're actual victories in your life. And now, because you, because you now know the order of temptation, you now know where to take the fight against temptation. You know that the place to fight is right at the beginning. It's right at the beginning. It's at stage one when it's just an enticement. The, the fight is on the balcony. See, that's where repentance is most potent. When you're dealing with desires, that's where repentance has its power because repentance means to turn away. And so the fight against temptation is one when you turn away from sinful desires before they give birth to sin. And as you continue to fight every day, as you live this life of repentance, uh, keeping your eyes fixed on Jesus, you know that taste of the future victory over sin that Christ has won for you? That taste becomes so much more sweeter every day as you fight. See, that's how you go forward. And so we see that how you deal with temptation, it's a huge part of remaining steadfast under trial. And in the gospel, you have everything you need to do that everything you need to remain steadfast. Uh, you, if you're a believer, you have a new heart. You have a wonderful future. You have a loving Heavenly Father who, who is putting you through trial for your good, to make you more like Jesus. And therefore, by faith, you can remain steadfast until that day when you will receive the crown of life that Jesus won. And he will put that on your head. And he gives that to all God promises to all who love him. So final words, hang in there. Keep persevering. Fight the good fight. Amen.